How can you achieve and maintain business growth? Harvard Business School Executive Education is now accepting applications for a new program, Driving Profitable Growth. Taking place in Boston from October 25th through the 28th, this program focuses on business expansion and organizational growth strategies that can lead your company into the future. Learn more about this three-day program for senior leaders by visiting hbs.me growth. That's hbs.me growth. Welcome back to Locked on Bucks presented by brewhoop.com. It is Thursday, if our calculations are correct. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night. Uh, I'm Frank Madden from Group.com, and I'm joined uh, once again back from uh, a, a couple-day hiatus. Uh, Eric Name of I don't know of Brewhoop.com, of ESPN Milwaukee, and of Milwaukee Magazine and General Man About Town. Eric, how are you? Oh wow, I really like that description. Um, I'm good. Uh, I, I did have a little hiatus. Normally, when we record on the weekend, I was in St. Louis for a wedding. Uh, that was awesome, and also awesome. I got in a car accident while I was there, so that was cool. Oh, rental car? Nope, my car. Oh, I'm actually well, kind of happy it's my car rather than a rental car because that could have got messy. Yeah. Anyway, let's not even go down this rabbit hole. Uh, we we'll save the the Eric's uh, my sob Eric story. Gets into a, Eric gets into a car crash story for <laughs> uh, for mid August when there's nothing happening. Yep. Uh, so what what we wanted to do today? We we solicited. Uh, a mailbag uh, on Twitter the other day, and we had a ton of questions, many good ones. We we uh, addressed a number of them, uh, myself along with Dan Sinclair, who was kind enough to join us on Sunday night. Um, great to talk to Dan after not uh, podcasting with him for a while. Uh, we hit a bunch of those questions uh, on Monday, Tuesday, and we still have a bunch of good questions. So now that Eric is back, it's the middle of the week. We thought we would try to get into some of those. And you know what? We're lazy. We like to just let you guys basically tell us what what to do and and inspire us because we're just not creative enough. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so we've got a few questions. We'll probably record a couple podcasts tonight, uh, and we'll start with uh, Tim McElrone. Tim, Timmy Joe eighty nine. Tim McElrone. I think that's how you pronounce your name, Tim. Thanks for the question. Tim asks. Do you see any big key players signing with the Bucks in the future? And I will interpret this narrowly and say this summer initially to start. I guess we could expand it. But yeah. I think regardless of whether we said this summer or next summer or the summer after that, I think answer the answer to that is is no, right, Eric? Yeah, a, a big move would have, to be, would have to be made to allow that to happen. Uh, the Bucks have next to no cap space left. Um, obviously, you, you would have the particulars on that, but very little cap space for the Bucks at this point. Um, and I guess going forward, they're pretty much capped out as well if we're going to factor in Giannis extensions and Jabari extensions. So for the most part, unless a major move is made where a number of these role players that are getting quite a bit of money are traded, it would be awfully tough for the Bucks to sign a big player in the future. Not that they wouldn't have the capability to do or I shouldn't say capability, but the attractiveness as a destination, whatever you may want to say, I think they'll have that going for them. They may have the cachet to sign uh, big players in the future, but they won't have the money. Yeah, so just to put some numbers around it right now, with Miles Plumley still not officially signed with Thonmaker and Malcolm Brogdon also not officially signed. Thonmaker counts against the cap uh, for his rookie scale amount of about two million when he'll 
um, like pretty much every first round pick, he'll get 120% of that. So his his number will go up a little bit by like probably like, you know 420,000 or something like that. And then Brogdon will uh, when he once he signs his his full new contract, which will probably be like you know something around a million or so, um, that will go against the cap. So probably a little south of a million, but um, but yeah. So uh, they still have some flexibility. If you assume that the guys they signed all signed uh, flat deals, um, they'd have around five and a half million in cap space while Plumley is still unsigned. So uh, the fact that they have not officially signed Miles, I think he's in France right now. I was seeing on Instagram. I yeah, think. that's what it looked like. Yeah, so I think uh, so. I, you know, again, uh, his his agent Mark Bartlestein, uh, when the deal was signed, I think I was reading in uh, I think Charles Gardner had a report that he was planning to, oh, he'll be coming back to Milwaukee to sign soon. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting because, again, once he officially signs, uh, his cap holds only a little over $5 million, and obviously his new contract is, is $13 million a year, which let's not even go into that again. But uh, but that effectively, if he signs it officially, wipes out the Bucks' cap space effectively. And then beyond sort of that $5.5 million that they have right now, um, they they also have this $2.9 million uh Room exception, which is basically a an exception that that every team that uh, that uses their cap space gets to have. So normally, if you're capped out, you have the normal mid-level exception, which is I think just south of six million this year. To be honest, like nobody had, everybody had cap space, so everybody just renounced their mid-level exception and just used the the smaller room exception because they wanted the cap space. Um, but anyway, not to get too too deep into that. Basically, the Bucks have five and a half million in cap space. And they have this $2.9 million room exception. And they'll need um, one of those to, to sign Brogdon, presumably, as well, because you can sign minimum contract players for up to two years. If you sign a guy for a third year or if you sign a guy for more than the minimum, you need cap space or an exception to do that. So just some you know, minutia to get into there. So I think the real interesting thing, though, is is are they keeping that cap space open to to do something they have? 13 guys either under contract or about to be under contract with with those three guys as we mentioned not officially signed yet and so the obvious question is what, what else do they do we've both discussed that we assume steve novak is is probably coming back on you know what we assume be a minimum deal and the real question is like is there anybody actually out there that that you might want to sign and there you know obviously are not really any big names that you could sign for five million dollars on a multi-year deal at this point probably Ooh. Ooh, um, okay. Let, let, I want to hit something here. Oh, God. Are we going to get back into Lance Stevenson? No, we are not. Um, <laughs> in the last week, I've had two people suggest things to me, and they are veterans that have names that you would know but may possibly be available for that. Um, I heard Paul Pierce and Vince Carter. Thoughts on either of those guys? Because, uh, again, they're very old, so you don't think of them <laughs> – owning the future but they could again i don't know if either of them are still basketball players um they might be more coaches but again this is uh the bucks are an organization that are always looking for high character guys high class guys people that can kind of show the young guys the ropes and teach them the right way to do it and vince carter and paul pierce might kind of fit that mold what are your thoughts on those two they're two guys that I think neither of us thought about because they're so old, but <laughs> we we just kind of completely breezed over them. And when they were brought up to me, I thought, "Huh, that's interesting." 
Yeah, see, I wouldn't think of Paul Pierce just because I think of him as more of a small ball four, and with Giannis, Jabari, and Toledovic sort of all splitting minutes at the four, it just doesn't seem like you would actually be playing Paul Pierce. Um, So, I mean, I think if you didn't have Toledovic and you had like a, a clearer hole for a stretch four... Pierce would actually be really interesting, but I don't even know. I mean, does Paul Pierce even want to play? Does he want to like play outside of LA where he was last year? And again, I don't know. Just, yeah, just throwing the names out there. Yeah, so I, I just, I, I doubt. Uh, I, I don't think Paul Pierce would make sense for probably either side necessarily. But uh, Vince Carter, I, I mean, I get the impression Vince. I think probably rather stay in Memphis. He seemed to, I don't know. He, I, and again, he could retire too, but. Uh, but I would probably prefer Vince. I mean, he you know he's dropped off, but the fact that he can shoot and you can actually make at least some case that he he fills more of a need. And I don't know. I liked Vince Carter back in the day. I still like Vince Carter. I, I love the fact that he reinvented himself from you know the ultimate high wire, arguably the best in game dunker in NBA history. That's fair. Uh, to a guy who was a great spot up shooter and and off ball kind of you know bench guy um, the last few years, especially in Dallas, and then to a lesser extent in Memphis. So I, I would be on board for Vince Carter. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'd, I'd be on board for that. I was going to say, both of them just interested me because they were bona fide stars. Like, there's there's no doubt about that, that those two were guys that were superstars. In the, I, I feel comfortable saying both of them were superstars in the league at some point. Like, Vince was carrying Toronto teams, Paul was carrying Celtics teams, and those were top 10 top 20 players in the league and if you're kind of trying to get Jabari and Giannis to learn how to be those types of guys maybe having guys around that have done that before uh, would be the way to do that so again I'd, I don't know if, again if either of them want to play if either of them can play if either of them are more suited for assistant coaching at this point but whatever it may be they're both interesting personalities to have around and that's not necessarily gonna cost it shouldn't cost the bucks a lot of money um and it could be someone that could fit into that last remaining spot again assuming novak signs and i just when they got thrown my way i again said huh, okay yeah i would much rather have vince carter than say karan butler I'll, I'll say yeah that. i'll say that much uh but, uh, yeah, interesting option. And actually, I'm just looking at it. So Vince Carter has said he wants to play two more years. So that's kind of interesting. But uh, but anyway, yeah, some interesting names out there. And and I think the other piece, too, obviously, is if you have you know some more cap space. And that could help you if you're, you know, for instance, trying to do a trade with lopsided salaries. But the, the weird thing is that if you're going to trade somebody, you'd, think it's, you'd assume it would be Greg Monroe. And I, and I would be surprised if the Bucks were taking back more salary than Greg Monroe's $17 million a year. So, um so I think, again, what we're seeing now is just sort of flexibility for flexibility's sake. And obviously they, they're looking at some different things. And I guess we'll see. Uh, we'll see. when Once they, again, once they sign Plumlee, once they sign those rookies, then that pretty much ends, you know, everything but, but some very low-priced potential deals. So, um, so we'll see what happens next. Uh, looking at um, our next list of, of questions... So, uh, this question, we, you know, it's interesting. We haven't talked much about defense this summer. Well, we talk about it, but we haven't talked much about how the Bucks' sort of defensive identity, 
will hopefully <laughs> evolve in the right direction, what their upside might be. And this next question from Eric Hansen kind of gets at that. Eric writes, is there any reason to believe the Bucks can will can slash will defend the three better this year? And I think the interesting way to think about this question is just kind of put aside the three ball for a moment, which you know I think is a, you know, a bit more of a random thing than, than certainly defense overall. But I mean, Eric, obviously, I mean, we talked a bit about like where we think the Bucks could be in the Eastern Conference and how much they can improve and their ceiling and all that. And I think implicit in that is if you think the Bucks are going to win a lot more games this year, then you think they're going to be probably a, a fair bit better defensively, right? So how are you thinking about this? I mean, is this a team that you think could be a top 10 defense? You think they sh- will be a top 15 defense? What sort of, where's your head at with, with regard to the Bucks defense? Oh man, you should have gone full SVH there and actually asked, uh, is it zero to 10, 10 to 20? (laughs) 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 Oh, well played my friend. Um, are they one to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30? Um, but yeah, I, I, by the way, I should, I should interrupt and and (laughs) for, for the uninitiated SVH is of course our, our dear friend, Steve Von Horn, former podcast regular who uh who's who's in his michael jordan phase where he's retired from basketball and is devoting his life to the white Sox for a couple of years <laughs> um and and i i'm hopeful he'll he'll return to us in glory someday soon but but yes steve steve would would say something uh like that steve would say something like well why should we care that that's what steve would say about the bucks <laughs> but the bucks and their defense but anyway continue bucks defense uh, I would agree with your assessment that the if this team is going to improve, it has to. I mean, a defensive improvement has to come along with it. I and I guess also in there is kind of the thought that just being in that system will make them better. Uh, I think the bigger point is how much better is there's. I I don't really see much use in saying, oh well, they're just going to get better next year. Well, sure. That that is, I'm I'm not going to say always the case because people do get worse. But defensively, in a system that you get to see for a second year, you're probably going to be better. But better, like I've said with Job this year, like Job moved from the worst player in the league to one of the worst players in the <laughs> league. It's improvement. It's better. But is that that much better? Is that actually going to help move the Bucks wins wise? And that's the ultimate question. And, I I mean, there's got to be some improvement there when you add Delhi, who is a better defender than Jared Bayless. I think that's pretty safe to say Bayless, most defensive units that he is a part of, didn't do very well. No defensive metric really likes him. While Delhi, you can find some defensive numbers that like him, and generally he is a tryhard on the defensive side of the ball, which should help out there. Uh, so you're kind of switching that out. You're switching J-O-B out for an actual NBA player in Toledovich, and that should help out as well. So those are small incremental ways to improve. Um, but overall, you're still going to play Jabari a bunch. You're still going to play Monroe a bunch. Um, how much? Obviously the question with Monroe, if he gets traded, and then you have Plumlee and Henson, is that a significant upgrade? So... I think for me to have an actual prediction, I would probably need to have a better idea if Greg Monroe is still on the team or not, because um, that's going to sway a lot of that. Uh, as we talked about throughout the season, I think a lot of the times it's not just 
one bad defender. I think a lot of times you can cover up for one bad defender, even if it is your center who is of the utmost of importance in any defensive scheme. Even if it is the center, you can kind of get around it if the other four are above average defenders. But when you start pairing bad defenders or, God forbid, you put three bad defenders on the floor like the Bucks did with a guy like, with Jabari, Monroe, and sorry, everyone, MCW. Um, when you put those three on the floor, it became disastrous because there, was, there wasn't just one guy missing rotations. There was three guys missing rotations or guys trying a little bit too hard and getting themselves out of position. And I think with Jabari, a lot of the mistakes he makes seem to be mistakes where he's trying just a little bit too hard and maybe calming down is going to help out a little bit. But then he also makes mistakes that – I haven't seen since playing middle school basketball. Um, his inbound, you're, you're, you're not a fan of his inbound defense. <sighs> I am not, Frank. I am not in any way. Um, let me, let me, so let me break in here. So first of all, um, and this is going to relate to the next question we have, I'm going to defend MCW's honor here. MCW, I mean, I, okay, we can't group MCW's defense in with those Agreed. other two guys. That is okay? 100% I mean, fair, and I would agree that, that the way I said it, probably would suggest that i grouped him with those two but he okay he, you continue you can, you can say that he underperforms relative to his toolkit let's say right because he obviously yes. is a very toolsy defender he's he's very athletic he's big he's not necessarily actually that long i mean he has the same length roughly as as tyler ennis and brandon knight ironically but yep. he plays big right he plays bigger than those guys he gets rebounds he gets blocks that that you know, point guards don't get. Um, I was gonna and, say, he, you know, he does a number of things that you're going to see on the defensive end, right. and, and I think that's the best way to describe his defense is that. Right. And but he's but he's also not a highly disciplined correct. system defender, and I think what we saw last year in some of the data suggested that you know adding him to the just kind of defensive you know struggle of that that Monroe and and Parker have was maybe not you know it maybe wasn't making things better okay um so i I, but you know look mcw was 12th among all point guards among 80 point guards in in defensive rpm last year 0.37 i mean you know there are a lot of metrics that we've seen over the years suggesting that he is a good defender and i and i would actually say that the the apparent um i don't know what you want to call it if you're calling it a reversal or, or whatever but it does seem like there's been a shift in the organization's willingness to move forward with mcw in some role uh and to me that actually makes me feel more optimistic about the defense i think you know to your point greg monroe not being traded yet is a very big sort of swing vote in my in my view of how the defense could be next year yeah i mean to greg monroe's credit if he leaves i think the offense absolutely gets you know worse just because you're taking away one really talented guy especially if he was going to play with second units more um but mcw potentially being around here actually makes me feel better about the defense because again i think again i I do think if he's motivated and healthy and has his head on straight and is you know again living up to close to what he can do physically then i think he's he's a major asset defensively um i'm so excited for this mcw thread that's going to go through all these questions very excited yeah we'll wait we'll give it one more second so i think the big question yeah i mean it absolutely is defense i think you know and they got better in the second half season but i mean we can obviously say well it's because their schedule got lighter it's because teams didn't care and blah 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 and you know it's it's we can kind of parse that to death uh bottom line they were 23rd in defense last year and i think if they're going to 
make a meaningful improvement in record wise this year. It's not just going to be because they outscore teams. Um, I don't, I don't think that's going to be how they do it. And I think, you know, Jason Kidd is probably going to tell you our, our defense has to be our identity and, and et cetera, et cetera. So I think, uh, I think they have to be gunning for being average or, or slightly above average defensively. I think that's what I want to see from them. And as far as the three-point line, which was the original question, that's tough because, honestly, like if they play, you know, again, a system that, that is in any way similar to what, they're, what they've done in the past, which I, I don't think they're going to completely play a totally different system, um, it, that tends to give up more three-point attempts. Yeah. So I think that they may still have games where they, they die by, by, the, by the opponent's three ball. Um, I guess one thing that kind of affects all of that is how easily Jabari, Giannis, and Chris can score in half-court settings. Because I think both you and I are of the belief that one of the major reasons that the Bucks try to play that aggressive defense is to get easy looks for Jabari and Giannis to get them going, to keep them moving at a fast pace. And there's so many people that say, let's have the Bucks play a more conservative scheme, go under some more screens, and just overall be less aggressive defensively, and that's going to help you defend the three-point line better, and you're not going to be trying to force all these turnovers but right now it's almost a necessity because of how good those guys are in transition, but also how they've struggled in half-court settings. So if the Bucks think those guys can take a major step offensively in the half-court, well, then maybe there can be some tweaks made where it's not quite as aggressive and they're not taking as many chances. So it's just intre- I think it's going to be very interesting to see how the Bucks' identity changes as those young guys develop because I think the way that they're playing right now both offensively and defensively is well suited to those the current the current versions of those players so that they're not great in half court settings so we're not going to put in some very complex half court kind of offense it's going to be more simple because that's what they can handle right now and defensively they're young. They want to run around. They want to try to force steals. So the Bucks are going to play a style of basketball or a style of defense that allows them to do that. So just watching that over the next three years, and again, it, it would be much easier to kind of in three years take film from last season and then take film in 2018-19 to see how that changes because I'm sure it'll be kind of a gradual transition, but that's – to me, the basketball nerd to me, that's going to be fascinating. Is how does how did they, I guess, get become more sophisticated offensively and defensively as those guys can possibly have the mental capabilities to handle more sophisticated offensive and defensive sets. And just to give people a sense of of where the Bucks' defensive metrics were from the three point line specifically, so last season they were smack dab in the middle in terms of opponent three point percentage allowed, thirty five point two percent which might, I guess, surprise some people just because it, it did seem, obviously, like oftentimes teams shot very well. Um, the issues were more in the attempts. They were 25th in three-pointers allowed overall, 9.3 per game, 27th in attempts uh, allowed, 26.5. And just to kind of frame out, you know, oh, was that some, like, dramatic, um, you know, 
worsening versus the the previous year when obviously they were a very good defense. Maybe not as much as you think. They basically allowed eight threes, so essentially one fewer three-pointer per game. They allowed, let's say, a little over two fewer three-pointer attempted per game in the year when they played very well defensively in 14-15. And um, they were one percentage point uh, better in terms of three-point percentage allowed. So, and again, I don't want to diminish the importance of those kind of small differences because obviously one more three-pointer per game is, is a Significant, lot. yeah. Unless you're, you know, dramatically cutting down on, on all the other stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think that the, the three-point shot, um, I don't know, sometimes I think it got kind of overrated as far as, like, like people got so focused on the three-point struggles that they didn't look necessarily at just sort of the broader issues with the defense. Because I think a lot of times, you know, the three-point three-pointers going in are the result of, you know, other problems. You know, point of <laughs> point, point of attack, letting guys get into the paint, kickouts, ball movement. You know, the three-pointer is just the symptom of, of much broader problems. And you know, two-point percentage allowed. Uh, two years ago, they allowed 47.6%. Last year, 50.2%. So actually, the, there was a much bigger drop-off in percentage terms in the two-point department than the three-point department. But obviously, you know that stuff, maybe people just don't feel or notice as much as the three-pointer. So no, anyway. That's a, that's a great point. I was going to say the thing that was most different in that defense to me last season was two years ago, the Bucks did a great job dictating where people went and during any nba game you're gonna hear ice 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 if you can imagine the tom thibodeau ice vine right now um that's kind of what i see in my head but that means keeping a player to the sideline and applying enough pressure that they can't skip a ball over the top of that pressure and then if you think of last season there was not enough pressure on the ball and guys were regularly crossing over and getting into the middle of the floor which is a big-time no-no, and also just kind of dribbling on a wing and skipping a ball over the top, and there just wasn't enough ball pressure to make that pass difficult. So, the again, like you said, the taking a look at it, you see all those threes, and, man, it's a three-point defense. Why can't they cover the three-point line? Well, most threes don't come from passing the ball around the perimeter. They come from serious dribble penetration, and the Bucks gave up a whole lot of that. And again, it's not a there's not a number that says the Bucks gave up 58% more dribble penetration to within 10 feet of the rim. Now, maybe the Sport VU data that the NBA teams have can show that, but I can't physically show you that in an article. I can show you that there was more three-point attempts and that's an easier point to make, but like you said, it's more about those other things that happened before it. And in most of those regards, the Bucks were just got awful last year. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I haven't looked at the – they do measure drives per game. Yeah. Uh, they publicly report that. It would be interesting. We could probably look at that. But I think – yeah, I would just say to kind of wrap it up, I think the three-pointers were, first off, probably one of a number of issues last year that may have just been more obvious um, but there were other issues, certainly, as, as shown by those two-point percentage numbers I just, just mentioned, and that three-pointers are, are generally a symptom of, of, first off, there is some luck in three-point percentage, but 
but I think the just the huge volume they allowed is is symptomatic of of broader problems at the point of attack and you know in terms of positioning and rotations and things like that. So anyway, it has to improve. Uh, last question we're going to get to on this pod. Uh, we alluded to Michael Carter Williams and CJ Robinson asks an interesting question, which is why are you guys so negative on MCW? So, Whoa. Time to look in the mirror, Eric. First off, do you think we are in the, in the spectrum of Bucks fans? Are we on the more negative side of the spectrum on MCW? Are we on the more positive side? How do you do you think we are overly negative on on MCW? I don't I think these questions are interesting because it's kind of hard a lot of times you sort of take for granted, you know, just that like oh my opinion is, you know, the correct neutral yeah. one or whatever it might be and and then, you know, you sometimes hear people wonder like, man, you're so negative about this guy or yeah. whatever. No, I think I think we do obviously anytime we try to attack one of these problems, look at it from all from all angles and then try to give a, an accurate description and MCW, I think, is just a fascinating case because I don't think there's, I don't think there's nuanced opinions on MCW. Like it's either MCW is great and he's going to be a superstar, and those, those were, I would say, much more frequent when the Bucks first traded for him. It was a lot of, he was a rookie of the year. He just needs to get in a better place. He needs to play for a better team. Everything's going to be fine. And then there was the other end of the spectrum, which is MCW's garbage. He's a terrible basketball player. He shouldn't even be in the league. Like, how did he win a rookie of the year? And that gray area in the middle, there's a lot of gray area to fill, but uh, it seems like it rarely actually gets filled with opinions. So I feel like we're in there somewhere. Because um, <laughs> really, with with the summer, as this summer's progressed, it's been the Bucks need to move Monroe. The Bucks need to move MCW. And I think throughout that we've we've mentioned that we think those moves are logical, but if they don't have to. They right? don't they have don't, to. They don't have to move MCW, which I think is something we've been pretty consistent that he's cheap enough and he does enough things that I think are interesting and unique. And yeah, you know, I, I think I think like neither of us is is, is ever going to say like oh we you know oh he's he's working on a shot. All he needs is that jumper, and then he'll have the whole. You know, I mean, we're not. I don't think either of us is expecting that to happen. He's, you know, twenty four, um, and and I think he's turning twenty five. I want to say in yeah. uh, August. So I don't think we're particularly hopeful about MCW, but I think we're very realistic and think that he does have value, and and he yeah. does bring things to the table that are very good for an, an NBA player, and. Again, I, I realize how hypocritical this is when 15 minutes ago I lumped him in with Jabari and Monroe. And maybe, <laughs> I guess maybe it is like just kind of a symptom of. I defended of, you, Michael. I defended you. Of, of let thinking the record, of. Let the record show that I put Eric. Well, I don't know if I put you in your place, but I, I made a you know vague little attempt to defend MCW. Anyway, proceed. Yeah, and, and I do think it, it is kind of easy to fall into that negative kind of feeling and I think there is something underlying all of it as a Bucks fan that there is a natural pessimism and there is a natural negativity that comes along with being a lifetime a lifelong Bucks fan um <laughs> but at the same time I feel like earlier this summer I I had an impassioned argument about why MCW is so valuable in this league and that 
he can defend ones and twos and he can be a physical presence defensively and though he may have the occasional defensive laps that just drives me absolutely insane and there are times when he's a little bit over aggressive and those two make me insane there are a lot of good things inside of Michael Carter Williams and he can be a very valuable player so I hope that we aren't negative and again I can see why that could happen just because there I, I think there is a natural pessimism that comes along with being a Bucks fan well well I, th- I think the I mean the other big piece we haven't talked about is that people hold the trade and what the Bucks didn't get from the Lakers as far as uh, or what the Bucks didn't get from the Suns as far as the Lakers protected pick and all that other stuff I mean the part of the issue is that I think the regret that Bucks fans feel over this trade seeps into the view of Michael Carter Williams as a human being who is a basketball player on, on the Bucks, yep. right? I mean, there's no undoing that trade, and some people don't like the trade because they love Brandon Knight. Some people don't like the trade because uh, they wanted the Lakers pick. You know, I would say, like, man, if you had to do it all over again, I want that Lakers pick. You know, I'm I'm okay punting on Brandon Knight. I don't particularly need Brandon Knight in my life as a Bucks fan anymore. I think, you know, I'm good kind of role playing at getting role players at, at point guard and letting Giannis do his thing, which I don't, you know, I think Brandon Knight would have maybe gotten the way of as much as he's a talented player and he's on a very good contract now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's the hard part. And I think it's very easy when you're critical of the trade for whatever reason, right? Yep. Um, when you're critical of the trade to have that, negative or to have that either in the way you view MCW or have others perceive that you're holding that against Michael Carter Williams, which isn't fair, right? It doesn't make sense. Like he can't, he's not the one who made the trade. So I think that's the other big piece here that, that is part of the negativity and it's not, and I would say it's not fair and it is irrelevant to, to the Bucks kind of ongoing decision-making because it's a sunk, you know, sunk cost, right? They, all they can do is make the best of, of what they have with, with MCW. And, you know, as we've said, he, especially as a six man, I think he absolutely can have a valuable role on this team. Um, I think he's probably a tougher fit in Milwaukee than in some other places because yeah. of the shooting issues. Uh, but by the same token, defensively, I think he makes sy- systematically he is potentially a hugely valuable guy in, in a system like the Bucks. So I think this has been good. Um, MCW, we don't dislike you. Uh, <laughs> we're rooting for you to come back and and play well and maybe we're not hyper optimists and expecting you to be an awesome starter this year but yeah nothing would surprise me right i mean you you got it dude you can do it you can do it go out there earn minutes do your thing lead the bucks back to a top 10 defense (laughs) whatever (laughs) and uh you know honestly even if you shoot 28 percent from three it's okay as long as you do those other things as long as you don't get so many turnovers and maybe make some some cool assists for Eric to enjoy from time to time. I really wanted um, to say something like, because you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people darn like you. Like but you. Yeah. I don't know if I, I'd probably have to argue with a couple of those. Because uh, <laughs> certainly people do not like uh, Michael Carter-Williams for whatever reasons. Yeah. So anyway, let's move past it. Let's, yeah. let's judge Mike MCW on the player he is. Let's find a role for him. Let's find a home for Michael Carter-Williams. Let's figure it out. Uh, we'll close off on that note of vague optimism uh, for the <laughs> night uh, for myself, Frank Madden, and 
Eric Name on the other end of the line. Uh, we thank you very much for listening. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Subscribe to us at the button on uh, the story that we wrote about this post on brewhoop.com. And look out for another podcast coming tomorrow. Thanks so much. Support for this podcast comes from NetSuite. NetSuite lets you run your business from your phone so you can see what's going on with your company in real time. Go to netsuite.com slash podcast to get your free guide and find out why NetSuite is the last business system you'll ever need.